Welcome to episode 37 of Can We Still Be Friends, a podcast that tests the limits of the friendship between two people who mistake movie taste for personal morality. I'm Nate Goss, here with Ryan Ebling. As huge fans of the Coen brothers, Ryan and I don't really disagree about any of their work, but we are open to any and all opportunities to watch one of their movies. With the recent release of Hail Caesar, their 16th film, we rewatched their 1991 Palme d'Or winner, Barton Fink. Hail Caesar actually has a lot in common with Barton Fink, but the main reason we chose to watch it again is that it's been too long since we've last seen it, and we really wanted to revisit a Coen Brothers classic. Despite contentiously winning three major awards at the Cannes Film Festival and being nominated for three Academy Awards, Barton Fink was not a very widely seen movie upon release. Critics were generally favorable, but only a few critics really praised it wholeheartedly. As with many Coen Brothers movies, it has taken people time to really warm up to it. As the film has aged, critics have come to appreciate this genre-defying tale. But is it truly a masterpiece with true insight into the life of the mind? Or is it all flash and no substance, an art house movie to impress those who think art only comes from inner pain? Keep listening. It's okay? Where'd we put him? I'm at the Earl. Never heard of it. Let's move him to the Grand or the Wilshire. Hell, he can stay in my place. Thanks, but I wanted a place that was a little less... Less Hollywood. Sure, say it. It's not a dirty word. Say whatever the hell you want. The writer is king here at Capitol Pictures. You don't believe me? Take a look at your paycheck at the end of every week. That's what we think of the writer. So what kind of pictures does he like? Uh, Mr. Fink hasn't given a preference, Mr. Lipnick. So how about it, Bart? Well, uh... To be honest, I, I don't go to the pictures much, Mr. Lipnick. That's okay. That's okay. That's okay. That's just fine. You probably walked in here thinking that was going to be a handicap, thinking that we wanted people who knew something about the media, maybe even thinking there was all kinds of technical mumbo-jumbo to learn. You were dead wrong. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bart? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out and enjoy a song? Is that more than one thing? Okay. The point is, I run this dump, and I don't know the technical mumbo-jumbo. Why do I run it? Cause I got horse sense, goddammit. Showmanship! And also, and I hope Lou told you this, I am bigger and meaner and louder than any other kike in this town. Did you tell him that, Lou? And I don't mean my dick is bigger than yours. It's not a sexual thing, although you're the writer, you know more about that. Coffee? All right, so that was Michael Lerner as Jack Lipnick, a Hollywood producer, showing um, John Turturro as Barton Fink, the writer. Uh, showing them the ropes, yeah. showing them how things work in Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> I, I got an education lesson out of that. Oh, I don't know. Absolutely. But that is a clip from the movie that we are discussing for uh, this episode, right. Barton Fink. And uh, Michael Lerner was uh, nominated for an Oscar for that role. I didn't even know that. Yeah, yeah, his only nomination. Oh, man, it's such well a good deserved, performance. well-deserved, right? It's like, so good. Looking back on it, yeah. We were just talking about how we needed a clip, and we didn't know how to end it because it was so good, but it was really long. And, and it's, it's just like, so rapid-fire. Like, yeah. He doesn't take a breath. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's a lot of unique characters in this movie. 
I don't know how you could pick one to nominate, but that would be a good one to nominate. <laughs> it, the, the, you've got Tony Shalhoub's character. Yeah. He's got a very brief performance, but very, very good. Steve Buscemi as Chet. Yeah, yeah. The, I, uh, I had forgotten about boy. that uh, yeah. until I watched it again. Um, uh, John Mahoney as W.P. Yeah, Mayhew. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my yeah. gosh, yeah. And, uh, and then uh, you've got John Turturro, of course, as Barton Fink. But, uh, I mean, it's almost a buddy movie yeah. with Charlie played by um, John Goodman. It was just amazing. Unforgettable, really. Yeah. Because, you know, here's the thing about Barton Fink. Uh, when I was talking to people about how this was going to be our next episode, I had the same thing come up over and over and over again. And that was, oh, I like that movie. It's been so long since I've seen it. I really don't remember it very well. I should yeah. probably watch it again. Yeah. You know, but I think what stuck in everybody's mind was John Goodman's mm -hmm. character. Oh, absolutely. To some degree. He's yeah. kind of the enduring image um, of the movie. I also got a lot of people saying, I remember liking it, but I remember it was weird. <laughs> yeah. And I think in in some ways, people may remember more of the movie than they think mm -hmm. um, because it is as weird and as off the wall and as scattered as yes. maybe they remember it being. Right. Yeah. And it is, even after just seeing it, it is kind of hard to nail down. I mean, you get, you, you remember it in bits and pieces, but it's kind of hard to nail down what really happens in the movie, right. you know? <laughs> yeah. And it's hard to say what kind of movie this is. Yeah. Because it is very funny. It's scary. It's very disturbing. It's very um, tense. It's thought provoking. There's mm -hmm. so much that's going on, but it's never all of those things for very long. It, it switches yeah. back and forth between these genres. And when I say it's a buddy movie, it is for a time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> for a few scenes. Yeah. yeah. And um, it's a romance for a while. Right. And it's a murder mystery for a while. And it's a horror movie for a while. I'm hoping in our discussion eventually we'll, we'll maybe talk a little bit about that, what you could call scattered nature of it and, and maybe how that stacks up against some of the other Coen mm -hmm. Brothers work as well. Uh, why don't we go ahead and let's back it up just a little bit, okay? And maybe do what we uh, what we usually do. What we usually do in our episodes, and and maybe just talk about uh, the first time we saw Barton Fink. I I don't know when it was. I think it was after college, and I I just hadn't seen it. I hadn't seen that Coen Brothers movie. You were checking it off the list, kind of. Yeah, that and I think Miller's Crossing were two of the, the last ones mm -hmm. for me to see. To be honest, I don't think I gave it my full attention. Like a lot of people, I remember thinking it was weird, but I remember liking it. I remember uh, being impressed by it, but I don't think at the end I could really say very honestly what I thought about it because mm -hmm. I don't think I totally understood it. Right. I'm not sure I understand it now, but <laughs> that's a good point. Um, or but fair I know, enough, I yeah. know, I know, I saw something impressive, which I think is always the case with the Coen Brothers yeah, for me. Absolutely, and not not in a way that like tries to be impressive, like. Perhaps in Yuri too, who we talked about recently. It, it, you just need to process it. I think if they had the Oscars five years after um, <laughs> right, the, right. the year movies came out, I think the Coen Brothers would be like perennial winners. They should have an award for that. They like, should. They like, should say they ten should. Years have, a, ten years ago. Ten, yeah. What was the best movie? Nominees. These are the best. These are these are the movies that we are nominating as the best movies ten years ago, and you pick mm -hmm. one. I, it'd be really curious yeah. to see what would come I'd out. I'd be fascinated. And I think the Coen brothers would sweep a lot of that I stuff. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so for those who maybe don't know exactly how old you are, you said you watched it after college. How many years had it been since you've seen Barton Fink then? I mean, it's probably been six or seven years. I think it's been about eight years for me. Yeah. I think I, I was 
just like you. I uh, watched it. It was after college, um, and it was just I, – I remember getting it from the library because I saw it. it was a, I actually knew nothing about it, really. Yeah. It wasn't one that a lot of people talked about as far no. as when they talk about the Coen brothers. And um, I just saw that it was a Coen brothers movie. I don't remember what made me pick it up. I watched it, really liked it, thought, man, this is out there. But I, I kind of dig this thing. Oh, you yeah. Know? I really yeah. dig this thing. And then I, I'm kind of like you, too, where you know it was over. And here's the thing is like, I kind of felt like I probably should process it, like try to figure out what it was really getting at. And then I, I don't know that I, I actually put that much energy into doing that. Afterwards. No. Yeah, I know. I didn't. I, yeah. So I kind of left it at that. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think what a lot of people leave it at, which is, it's kind of weird. I yeah. like it. The end, it's you know, pretty, that's kind of, yeah. yeah. It's a pretty comp- complex movie. It, I mean, yeah. it doesn't give itself up very easily. So did you rate it in Letterboxd, even though it had been a while? Yeah, I, when I set up my Letterboxd account, I did rate Barton Fink. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I had given it four stars. Yeah, and that was too. basically just going off of what I remember feeling about it. And you know? I would feel bad rating the Coen brothers lower than four without really remembering. Right, it. yeah. So, yeah. Okay, so we were the same on that. Yeah, but... So we'll jump into the mean? rewatch there. Yeah, <laughs> you both liked it a lot. Four stars. So before we officially jump into the rewatch discussion uh-huh. uh did that rating change for you at all um no but four stars but uh i can see a conversation affecting it yeah i am this is so stupid to quarrel about like half uh, a star here all and there, right but i will be bumping mine up to four and a half stars <laughs> oh, well all right <laughs> and the main reason is just because i think i liked it more this time watching it than i did the first time i did too but I don't trust my four-star rating before. I mean, <laughs> so if I were saying, like, I liked it more, and if I liked it four stars, then I should bump it up. I don't know what I liked it back then. <laughs> so on the rewatch, what did you notice this time? What what made it stand out? What made you like it more? Okay, so... Aside from maybe remembering it. Yeah, well, let's put this in the, the context of where I'm at with the Coen brothers right now, which is that I had actually just seen mm-hmm. Hail Caesar. Right, me too. And um, loved it. Yep. But I think maybe more than other Coen Brothers movies, Hail Caesar really made me pay attention to how technically proficient they are at making films. Oh, yeah. I mean, we knew this. Right. But Hail Hail Caesar is like, we can do this movie. We can do this movie. Yeah. And you're going to love watching this, Mm -hmm. you know, and and we're going to do it to the T perfection. Right. You know, and we're still going to make you laugh the entire time. Right. And we're still going to make it pretty scattered and layered mm-hmm. and 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 kind of off the wall all over we're the place come from and, nowhere a couple times yeah and we're gonna and we're gonna somehow pull it together in the end yep and you're gonna leave thinking what the hell did i wa- just watch but i yeah. really loved it yep and so coming off of that and then watching barton fink which on the surface of my memory was supposed to be a much simpler film right you know a l- i thought it was much smaller cast, much smaller mostly takes place in small rooms mm-hmm. you know um I was thinking, okay, so what does that type of technical skill look like in a movie like Barton Fink? Yeah. And how does it how is it still so quintessentially Cohen Brothers? Yeah. And it totally is through and through. And so what what I was really paying attention to this time were the more production details. You know, like uh the sound design was something that yes. really hit me this time that yep. totally missed me the first time. Yeah. 
I, I mean, it hits you subconsciously because I think the sound is where most of the horror comes through. Yes. No. Mm-hmm. And when I when I'm talking about the sound design, I'm talking about the fact that it really zeroes in on like mosquitoes buzzing, mm-hmm. fans, mm-hmm. doors opening. Um, the sounds of the springs on beds, right. the way it sounds when wallpaper peels off and this glue is kind of oozing. You're always sort of hearing sounds from other rooms. Yeah. And the way that those are amplified, it kind of reminded me of Eraserhead with David Lynch, mm. you know, where yeah, it's, there's, a there's very an unsettling David Lynch. feel mm-hmm. to the sound that you're hearing. It is zeroing in on these things that normally would not be so loud, but when you're in the middle of sort of a neurotic state. Right. It's all you can focus on. Right. You know. Yeah, it, you you feel his tension and you feel the pressure that mm-hmm. he he doesn't totally exhibit. It's a good way to show how intimidated he is by the prospect of writing films. Yeah. He's very comfortable writing plays. He gets a lot of praise writing right. plays. And he frames it as, oh, I don't want to leave my message. But really, he's moving from that big fish, small pond mm-hmm. to small fish, big pond. And I think that that scares him more than he lets on. And that pressure, that that feeling is felt through those noises. The Coen brothers, they do a good job of cluing you into the fact that you should be paying attention to this. Because even before those types of things happen, where he's starting to get more and more agitated out of his depths, mm-hmm. in the very beginning even, there's like the scene where he comes into the hotel and he hits the bell. Yeah. And the amount of time the it rings. Just sustains. Just sustains. Yep. So that was one thing. There's a lot of other things. Well, um, it's, but it's just part that, of part of that, what you're, what that's a larger part of is the details and mm-hmm. just how perfect down to every last detail their movies are. I mean, everybody talks about Wes Anderson, rightly so, being meticulous. Mm-hmm. But the Coen brothers, they're, I don't know if anybody casts a movie better than the Coen oh, brothers. Oh, no. Every minor, minor, yes. minor role is perfect. Yes. You immediately see that person and you know who they are. Well, not oh. only do you know who they are, like it says a lot about what that character is supposed to be, mm-hmm. but... Just their physical features are memorable. Yes. You know? Yeah. yeah. And they, I mean, they pick people with even their leading actors. I mean, John Turturro and Steve Buscemi and William H. Macy, Jeff Bridges. These are all very unique looking right. people. And then when they do use George Clooney, they're using his star power. They don't ask him to melt into another role. Mm-hmm. Like it's in Intolerable Cruelty, he plays this very slick lawyer and... Only a movie star could play that role. And in uh, Oh Brother Art Thou, it's his charisma that that people follow. Right. That he's got, you've, you realize as the movie goes on, he's got nothing but charisma. That's all it is. There's, There's nothing no, underneath that. Yeah. Right. And then in uh, Hail Caesar, the same thing. It's that movie star who's vacuous and yep. so easily swayed. Yes. <laughs> like within 
two minutes of, of talking communists. to communists, he's <laughs> he's on their side. Yeah, and um, they they just yeah, the, like you said, they know how to use people's faces. Just yeah. it's it's and again, and I think, uh, and I don't want this to turn into just a Hail Caesar episode, well. but a good example of the casting and the faces, even in the minor roles, is even right now I can picture most of those communist faces. Yeah, but they're just memorable. Looking. Yeah, well, I, and I think it's it's fitting that Hail Caesar keeps coming up because the movies feel very similar in ways, not just time period. I mean, Burton Fink's in the 40s, Hail Caesar's in the 50s. Mm -hmm. And they're both set in Hollywood. Right. And they both deal with the Hollywood system and that sort of thing. But they also both have uh, an element of mystery to them that like there's somebody that needs to solve kind of something that they're mm -hmm. not sure what they're trying to solve and that sort of thing. Um, and also it's sort of one man struggling against or on behalf of the studio system too, mm. in both ways. Yeah. With uh, Josh Brolin's character struggling to maintain the studio system's hold and Barton Fink struggling to work within that system. Yeah. And in both cases, both struggling and yet staying loyal to the fact that they have a job to do. Right. Barton Fink mm -hmm. is struggling to get his script written, but he never, it's like never even an option to just say, I'm not going to do it. Right. Uh, and same with that Eddie Mannix character, you know, the fixer of Hollywood. Uh -huh. He's just got a job to do. Yep. This is his job. But, uh, but yeah, we are talking about Barton Fink, so we should say a little bit more about that, I suppose. <laughs> um, another thing that I kind of thought about, and I think it, it feels like something the Coen brothers often discuss in their movies, is the idea of your actions and the effects that your choices have on other people. It's not as much with Barton Fink, but it is there, I think, with the way Barton ignores Charlie and ignores what he thinks is who he's speaking for. So a uh, little explanation if you haven't seen Barton Fink in a little bit. Barton Fink really thinks that he is like voice of, of the working man. Of the people, yeah. yeah that the common What man, makes yeah. his work important is that he gives a voice to people who don't have a voice and he tells the story of the the common man they're not necessarily sensationalized they're not much drama but he feels like that's real life that's a story that mm -hmm. needs to be told and he claims to not care about the critics right because he, that's not who he's writing this stuff for he's writing right. this for the common man about right. the common man but what ends up what, what and then he meets charlie his next door neighbor in the hotel and charlie keeps trying to tell him stories of his life Hell, why not? Everyone wants quality. Well, what kind of uh, venue, that is to say, thematically? Um... What do I write about? <laughs> Caught me trying to be fancy. Yeah, that's it, Bart. Oh, that's a good question. Strange as it may seem, Charlie, I, I guess I write about people like you. The average working stiff, the common man. Well, ain't that a kick in the head? Yeah, I guess it is. But in a way, that's exactly the point. There's a few people in New York, hopefully our numbers are growing, who feel we have an opportunity now to forge something real out of everyday experience. Create a theater for the masses based on a few simple truths, not on some shop-worn abstractions about drama that don't hold true today if they ever did. I, I don't guess this means much to you. Hell yeah, I could tell you some stories. And that's the point, that we all have stories. The hopes and dreams... But he, he doesn't listen to him, And really that, come, that ends up kind of biting him in, in the end, as Charlie turns out to be 
a serial killer yeah <laughs> who burns the hotel down yeah. um but even on a smaller level it's kind of this it's got this irony to it that the only time he really does listen to him is when he's annoyed by hearing him on the other side of the right. wall yeah that's how this whole thing when he doesn't started. know who he is yeah yeah he's he's calling down to <clears throat> chet the bellboy saying, mm-hmm. can, can you do something about this neighbor of mine who's being very loud? Because that's all he can focus on. Right. He can't write because he can't stop focusing on this noise. He blames you know? it on that. Well, yes. Even yeah. though really I, he just maybe can't tell a story. Other Could be. Than yeah, you never really story. know. Yeah. Um, to me, that, that long ringing bell, the detail when he puts his suitcase on the bed and it bounces way longer than any bed would ever bounce, when Jack hits the desk and... After the initial hit, there's like a couple of extra noises of things falling. Just throughout the movie, mainly through sound, they have that extra long effect. Like Hmm. a sound goes for longer than you would think. And I feel like that's part of what they're saying in a little bit in Barton Fink, but also a little bit in a lot of their movies, No Country for Old Men, Hmm. Burn After Reading, um, that the choices you make have effects that you don't think about, but the people are pretty much inherently selfish. I feel like that's... The Coen brothers' view of humanity it, is yeah. that for the most part, people are selfish and they'll do uh, things to protect themselves or to advance themselves right. before they'll do anything else. And they they really focus on what happens to you and to the world when you make those selfish choices. Right. And like you said, he called Chet because Charlie was annoying him and it opened up the movie. The movie happens because of that one yes. phone call. Yeah. And by the way, they used that same technique in no country for old men mm. did you see the did you see uh the parallel at all between what happens when he calls and charlie walks up to his door to with what anton sugar does in the hotel yeah. with um Llewellyn moss yeah yeah where you hear you hear the footsteps mm-hmm. and then you see them at the bottom of the door all in one shot oh that's uh, yeah in no country for old men that's one of the most tense scenes oh my gosh it's so good <laughs> i've ever seen yeah it's amazing um but i i was i was happy to see that come back like oh they can use yeah. it yeah because it's kind of funny but it also feels very ominous mm-hmm. i don't and, think it's as funny in no country for old men no in i Martin, think it's, think it's funny terrifying. and ominous yes in no country for old men it's absolutely terrifying yeah. and that's another thing that that scene is all sound yes it's mostly in the dark you hear the phone ringing. Anyway, this is yeah. turning into a Coen Brothers, <laughs> uh, just general podcast, which is let's stick to fun by us, here. but yeah. maybe not for you guys. Um, yeah, so I feel like that sort of came through to me. I don't think it's the main point of the movie, but I think it's definitely something that fleshes out Barton as a character. That he's a very narrow, focused, uh, selfish character who is not a very good writer. Really, he can write one thing, and once they ask him to step out of that, he's at a loss. Is he, at a, is he at a loss because he really couldn't write? Because Audrey kind of tells him what to write. Yeah. And, and also basically says, this is the formula. And, and Lipnick, I think, says, mm-hmm. Lipnick basically lays out, this is the picture. Are you going to do a dame? Or are you going to do an orphan? Like, yeah. it's a very, he, he, Barton is given a job to write something that is, by all accounts, a very formulaic genre boxing picture. And the template is there. He's just got to basically fill in the gaps and he just can't do it. And I think the question, at least for me, is could he do it mm-hmm. if he was just willing to not try to write the next best classic thing ever written, yeah. you know, the, the most amazing thing ever written? Or is it that he really doesn't have any talent whatsoever? He's a hack and can't really even write the most simple thing. Is, is yeah. he his own worst enemy when it comes to writing? I would know? tend to say that he's a hack and pretentious, that he thinks he's telling this story of the common man. He doesn't understand the common man. 
as evidenced by the fact that he well, won't yeah, listen we to know Charlie. That, yeah. And he knows one view of the common man. Mm-hmm. He thinks that the common man is sad. He thinks that life is depressing and hard. Whereas Charlie, for the most part, is a super happy, jovial guy. Mm-hmm. Even on that day where he comes in and he realizes he, he hasn't sold anything, he had a terrible day, and he said he couldn't sell ice water in the Sahara, he's still got like this upbeat, yeah. like positive energy. And what I noticed this time too is that his play ends with the stagehand yelling, fresh, 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 whatever. Right. And he opens his uh, wrestling picture with sounds of the street, fishmongers. Yes. That's yeah. it. And so he's, it just showed to me that he doesn't, seek out the real story he just tries to force the common man's experience into his very narrow perception of what it is and he even ends it with the same line ends the play and the movie with the same line we're going to hear from that kid again and not in a postcard he for whatever reason believes that just writing about the common man is the ideal right that somehow that that's what makes him a great writer is not so much what he's writing, but just his topic choice. Like, right. That, yeah. 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 Like I'm, I'm writing about the common man. That's so what that makes, makes me a, great, a good writer. A great yeah. writer you but know. what would have made him a good writer in Hollywood is, can you write to the formula? Can you yeah. make the formula interesting? And, um, which could be even, I think a little meta for the uh-huh. Cohen brothers in saying like, there's something to be valued in someone who can write all different kinds of movies right. and respect the genre and, and even, even play with, mm-hmm. The stuff that we would normally maybe think is very cliche about that genre yeah. or that we would write off as being a lesser type of picture. And and the Coen brothers have kind of proven again and again that there there's value in doing that. There's value in being given a formula and telling an amazing story just within the constraints of that formula. Yeah. And even though they're such, you know, sort of serious filmmakers, they appreciate levity and they, mm-hmm. they understand the case for comedy. And um, like, I don't think the Coen brothers would necessarily, I don't know if I've seen it, but I don't think they'd be above a good fart joke if it came up, you know, <laughs> probably not <laughs> if it was done right. Right. Maybe let it ring out super long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, <laughs> I can see yeah. them pulling it off is what I'm saying. You know? Right. Like and in I, their own way. And I think that they, they're very aware of that idea of being, um, too far into yourself that you lose any sort of perspective or that you have anything to say anymore. Mm-hmm. They called Oh Brother Where Art Thou, Oh Brother Where Art Thou after the Preston Sturgis movie Sullivan's Travels. In that movie, Sullivan is he's a he's, he makes comedy movies and he's done with that. He wants to make a, a real picture. He wants to make a serious picture about the common man, about like the the struggles and it's gonna be called Oh Brother Where Art Thou. Mm. And so even that title feels so like Brother, can you spare a dime? Just like right. that sort of like very uh, Woody Guthrie, like voice of the 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 the, the worker and the common right. man and all that stuff. And in Sullivan's Travels, he realizes when he mistake like through mistaken identity and gets put on a chain gang, and they are shown a movie in a church, and he's with the common man. He's with people who are suffering, and they watch the silliest cartoon. Mm-hmm. And these prisoners are just laughing and eating it up. He realizes this is what the common man needs. Yeah. They don't need another person telling how terrible their life is. Right. They need this escape. And so then, oh, brother, Arthur does this escape. And the, I, I feel like that's something that the Coen brothers have thought about a lot throughout their careers. Yeah. What's the movie they're watching in Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? 
when they're in the movie theater as a chain gang? Oh, that's a good question. I think it's it's a and John Turturro's. It is like, a cartoon though, right? Uh, I wish I knew. Maybe it's not. That scene is exactly like um, the scene in. Uh, well, not exactly like, but it's very very it's similar. Probably to a, the it's scene probably a reference to it. Yeah. It definitely is. Yeah. It definitely is the way they kind of shuffle in like that. Mm-hmm. But it's it's a very common theme in the Coen Brothers movies. The what is art here for? You've got that in Inside Lewin Davis. You've got it in Hail Caesar. Mm-hmm. You've got it in some ways in Big Lebowski. Yeah, with uh, the Julianne Moore character right. and and her, she's sort of playing that very high minded yes. artist, right? You know? Right. And you, the dude just kind of comes in and neutralizes it all. And then I I think in a way they're putting that into practice with the Lady Killers and Intolerable Cruelty movies that people aren't praising yeah. as much as other coen brothers movies but sort of they're they're really they are funny and they're, they're and, really well made and kind of hammy so i think that that's part of what barton fink is doing but mainly just because it's the coen brothers mindset not necessarily so much that like that's why they made this movie but i just see that in there i see that thread throughout other other movies that yeah. barton fink is this almost a caricature of that sort of artist i had a question i've been thinking about especially after watching barton fink because like i feel like i often hear when people talk about the Coen brothers. Um, first of all, they'll talk about how their outlook is pretty grim. Even I've even heard the word nihilistic. You know, just this idea that the Coen brothers are always, or that they have contempt for their own characters. I've heard that too. Oh, I find that not to be I true I don't find all. that true. But here's the thing. I, I, they do tend to paint sort of a, a little bit more of a cynical, a cynical picture. But I have never left a Coen brothers movie feeling in despair. The closest... I I I leave, I will leave the theater in confusion. Yes, there's but that sometimes. I, even with a serious man, where he he receives good news, and then the tornado's coming. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't want to spoil every single Coen Brothers movie, but I think yeah. it's interesting to think about how every single Coen Brothers movie ends. Yeah, you know, this one ends interestingly with you see a foreshadowing of it with the picture on the wall of the woman at the beach. Right. And then he sees that exact picture in real life. He actually sees the woman on the beach. And then you just get that extra little bit of a sad, dark humor of the seagull just kind of dying and falling into the water. So there's that. Like it it always has to be counterbalanced. Yeah. And then similar to the tornadoes in a serious man, Oh brother, where art thou ends with the catastrophic flood, you know, Um, they're going to throw something in the end that, is completely outside the control of any of the characters. Well, that's the thing. And that you and to kind of remind you no matter how this movie ends, you are not in control. And I could see people viewing that as kind of a nihilistic worldview. But that's not really how I interpret it at no. all. I don't know really I don't know how to put into words what I do interpret that as other than I think by the time you see it, you have spent enough time with these characters even if you don't think they're good people. Mhm you've spent enough time with them to relate on some level care, to their, care to care about them. them and to relate to them on some level of their humanity to where you almost feel connected on a deeper level. Well, to me, it's almost always like we're all in this together. Cut each other some slack because a tornado may be coming. A flood may be coming. You might get hit by a car. The world could randomly throw money your way just as quickly as it could randomly throw you a disaster your way. And inside Lewin Davis, I to me, part of what that movie is about is about the fickleness of fame, how he gets done playing a song and starts walking out as Bob Dylan takes the stage to play a very similar song. Mm-hmm. Like it's just random, pretty much. Even art defining fame. Yeah. 
is random. Random's a good word for it because I think I wonder if what people when people think of the Coen Brothers as being grim filmmakers, mm-hmm. if they see nothing but despair in that idea of the randomness of things. And I think maybe what mm-hmm. I get out of the Coen Brothers, whether it's intentional from them or not, I don't really know. But I feel like they portray that randomness, but that doesn't mean it's there's no meaning in it. Well, and there's also pretty often where people have put themselves in randomness's way because of selfish choices they made hmm. sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. You, you put yourself in a certain heightened situation. Mm-hmm. You're rolling the dice. Right. You know. And what are your motives? And, and so often it's money. And so often it's a pretty insignificant amount of money, all told, like in the Fargo. And for what? For a little bit of money. Right. And it's random that Barton Fink, the movie we're talking about, <laughs> got put next to Charlie. But it was Barton Fink's choice to interfere with Charlie's life hmm. that ended him going on that spiral to where he's in, involved with this guy. Because nobody else in that hallway, he doesn't see anybody else in that hallway, except for Chet, nobody who stays there. And it was ultimately Barton's choice and the way Barton treated Charlie that made things worse for him. And it's also his choice to stay in that hotel. Yes, right. He thought... I want to be with the common man. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to intentionally not stay in the ritzy Hollywood hotel. It was a selfish hotel. choice. Yeah. And it was a selfish choice that was dressed up to look like a selfless choice. Right. Right. <laughs> he was doing it. He was sacrificing his own comfort for his art, but really you make a certain type of choice mm-hmm. and you're going to get thrown into a world. You have no idea what yeah. you're into. And that's so many of the characters in Coen brothers movies. And I think the Coen brothers don't, aren't cold toward their characters. Bad things happen to their characters, but they pick very real-looking people. And you immediately, like we said, understand that character based on what is they're sitting around, what they look like, how they're talking. You understand them. So you immediately empathize with Coen Brothers characters. And if they feel cruel to those characters, I think, for me, it's because you empathize with them so quickly that anything bad that happens to them, right. you really feel it. Yeah, and... and- there are a lot of different ways they do that. Casting is definitely part of that. I had shared on our Facebook mm-hmm. that the Tony yep. Zhu video on uh, the Cullen Brothers' use of uh, shot, reverse shot in their dialogue scenes. And one of the points he makes is just by placing the camera in the dialogue yes, uh, mm-hmm. instead of over the shoulder, yep. which is what a lot of filmmakers use to get more of a kind of a documentary or a or a or innocent bystander kind of feel yeah. by putting the camera where it does right kind of in the middle of the conversation that's where that empathy you can't help but you're feel talking like you're in to there. the characters you are talking right. to the characters yeah exactly yeah. and the movement they explain Roger Deakins explains the movement feels uh, much closer to you because they use a wide angle lens it feels so much more intimate yeah well and then he also makes up the point that the wide angle lens helps to make it feel more comedic yeah which I think is I always wondered, why am I finding this so funny? Mm -hmm. Because it's just two people talking. They're not even saying anything particularly all that funny. They've got some mannerisms, maybe. A few things, a few ticks that are funny. The delivery is great, usually, because they pick great actors. The timing's very good. But, you know, you got to wonder, when they're writing this script, they've got to be picturing how they're going to film it, because when you're just looking at the words on the page, it's not that funny. funny. Right. (laughs) But um, going back to... The empathy idea. I think the comedy and the empathy are pretty closely intertwined. Yeah, and and it's a lot of it is in the way it's shot. And so the comedy, even when you're laughing, it's interesting that because you might think that the character you're watching is a goof mm-hmm. or maybe a little slow, but you're never really laughing at the character. Right. You know, 
Yeah, I think the more I watch Coen Brothers movies, the more I realize that. That you could watch Fargo and be like, man, they think that people in Minnesota are hicks. But they they don't. When mm-hmm. Marge at the end is talking to her husband and he's talking about, you know, winning a prize, like second place for his duck drawing in like the stamp competition. You really, I think, feel enough for those characters and you see you see the strength of Marge to have come from witnessing what she witnessed. And they just, um, I think they care about their characters more than people realize. Right. And to bring it back to Barton Fink, there's not only empathy, but there's also that idea of the the comedy and all the, the, the range of emotions they can make you feel in that final scene in Barton Fink where, um, not the final, final scene, but Charlie's final scene hmm. where he's lit the hotel on fire yeah. and Barton Fink is kind of like afraid of him and, you know, and like... he's chained to the bed. Right. I know what it feels like when things get all balled up at the head office. It puts you through hell, Barton. So I help people out. I just wish someone would do as much for me. Jesus, it's hot. Sometimes it gets so hot I want to crawl right out of my skin. But Charlie, why me? Why? Because you don't listen! Dripping again. Come on, Barton. You think you know pain? You think I made your life hell? Take a look around this dump. You're just a tourist with a typewriter, Barton. I live here. Don't you understand that? You feel so many things. You're kind of on the verge of tears. You, you think you're also kind of laughing at w- what John Goodman's doing yeah. because he's funny. He'll, he'll pause in the middle of this emotional speech to just say, God, it's hot. It's hot. <laughs> and the, the physical comedy of it is also subtle but funny. Yeah. Um, but then you also get him talking about how everyone thinks he's a madman, but he's not a madman. He sees people in trouble. He sees yeah. how trapped people are. Right, and he just wants to help them. In other words, he feels empathy for them. He yeah, understands exactly, them and exactly. he wants to help them, whereas Barton never understood or truly empathized with anybody or tried to help it's, them it's in any real that way. Scene. At one point, you're about to cry because you can tell he's just hurt. He's hurt by Barton. Yeah. You really feel like you're just going to fall apart for this guy. Yeah. And then he pauses and just yells at him, you don't listen. And then you're laughing. Right. But there's also truth. And it's also yeah. it's scary because you don't know what this guy's going to do. Right. Um, there's, oh, man. It's, it's, just, just, it's just so packed. And then to me, this the most like heart-wrenching moment is when he, he admonishes, like we were saying, going to the hotel was this selfish, selfish endeavor masked as selflessness. He was, as Charlie calls him, a tourist. A tourist with a typewriter. Yeah. Right. And then he says, and you come into my home and you complain that I'm too loud. And his face in that almost looks like the kind of face you would have in a different movie told by like a hurt parent, a housewife or parent or, yeah, or like mother. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. It's very it's maternal very, mm-hmm. there, I think. Yeah, it's, it's just, I'm not mad, I'm disappointed. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And in that, mo- in that scene, I feel empathy for Charlie and I don't for Barton. Mm-mm. He's 
Charlie's right. He's Barton's, Barton's needed getting, to hear this. Barton's getting the talking to he should have gotten a long time right. ago. And all he can say is, I'm sorry. And I'm know? afraid for what could happen to Barton, mainly because I'm afraid of what I would see. Not so much because I really don't want Barton to get hurt. Yeah. And then he doesn't do anything to Barton, but he does break him down and Barton apologizes yeah. after that. That's just like a microcosm of yeah. all that they can do. Yeah. And I'll throw another thing in there. The Coen brothers also, I think, like to play with a lot of Old Testament imagery and Old mm. Testament. And you even get earlier in the movie the passage that look, it's the opening of Genesis, but he sees it as the opening of his, uh, right. his script. So that's another thing. But did you, were you thinking what I was thinking when you see the Charlie character actually free him? And it, it, to me, it had a very Samson look mm. to it. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. he, he's using all of his strength to just yeah, bend these bars, moment. you know, mm-hmm. to, to free him. Yeah. Uh, and it's a selfless move, right. you know. Even though he has been hurt by this guy and he's mad. But he, he's, I mean, not mad. Oh, I mean, and he's, he's, like, he's kind of psychotic, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, But he also is true to what he said. He sees people who are trapped and he wants to free them. Yes. And he does that, one, literally, by freeing Barton from the chains, but two, by telling Barton what nobody ever told him before. Mm. And it took murdering three people, burning down the hotel, <laughs> yeah. and screaming at him before Barton heard what, Charlie was trying to tell him. I think that whole s- sequence, the mm-hmm. whole ending, burning down of the hotel sequence, has to go down as one of my top, top five for sure. Coen Brothers yeah. moments in movies. Oh, yeah. Because I will never, even from the first time I saw it, get that image of John Goodman through mm-hmm. the door with the flames, mm-hmm. with the shotgun. Right. <laughs> just or, that ominous. Well, feel that have, and dude. him just tearing down the hallway. Yes. Screaming, "I'll show you the life of the mind." <laughs> Yeah, and I also wonder what you think of the fact that, for the most part in this movie, Barton Fink, its tone sticks pretty close to reality for the most part. Yeah. Um, you know, there's not... If for, there's For the Coen brothers. For the Coen brothers, Especially yeah. considering, you know, like, Raising Arizona and... Uh, yes. Hudsucker Proxy. And there are moments where they could have cut to a fantasy sequence, but they don't. Mm-hmm. Like seeing the woman on the beach... You know, you hear the waves. Right. So it kind of sticks to reality. And then what do you make of the fact that when you get to that scene, that is not what a burning of a hotel would look like. Right. And there is no smoke. Uh Uh-huh. There's flames everywhere. They are able to be in that room much longer than anybody should rightfully be able to be in a a hotel that is really quickly going up in flames. Uh Uh-huh. And... I don't think that you ever even see how they escape. No, you don't. Barton obviously does escape. I don't really know if Charlie does. Um, I don't know. You don't do you, know. Is there room for an interpretation of some kind of dream sequence there? Or, well, I don't know. There I, don't, is, I don't want there to be. I, I want that I don't to, think it's airtight. I don't yeah. think it needs to be airtight. But I think one thing, one sort of explanation is that <laughs> Charlie is the devil and the hotel is hell. Yeah, I think that's definitely the, and, the image they are trying to paint yeah, for you. Yeah, whether he really is or not. But, like, you've got, um, you know, he lives on floor six, and they say six three times when he goes in the elevator yeah. to it. And um, Charlie, I also noticed this time watching it, he says, like, goddamn, and talks about how hot it is, and talks about being in hell a lot. Mm-hmm. And... um because I empathize so much with Charlie and because I think his intentions are really good, the idea of him being Satan is a little bit odd. Yeah. And I don't want to, I mean, I don't want to read super far into it mainly because I don't think it's important, but also mainly because I don't know where to take that. (laughs) Right. I think it's just sort of interesting to think about. I almost wonder if um, that, that might be when, when people say that movie was weird. 
it is part of it just that you're that is a weird thing to happen don't get me wrong mm-hmm. you know a madman going up and, and burning down a hotel yeah um but there's actually nothing all that weird in a movie for that to happen yeah for a guy to come into a hotel and burn it and you know mm-hmm. i think what's very odd about this movie is that type of action is going on and then it takes the time to pause and reflect for a while right in that situation Mm -hmm. sit down for a while let's let's talk about what this movie's about (laughs) there's always something that you've never seen in a movie before yeah like what you just said the the dead seagull at the end yeah um the way barton acts at the uso dance Mm, yeah there's just all these anomalies to situations that you feel like you've seen before there's always some anomaly some strange thing when he realize he find i think it's after he finds audrey's dead body and the camera just pulls away and goes down the sink yes which kind of had a, a lebowski feel to it mm-hmm. um which lebowski would come later obviously right. but um they they do that once in a while where they're just, they're just going to take the camera and have it go somewhere you're not used to it going right whether it's in the in the gutter of a bowling alley uh-huh. you know or the drain in this case of of a sink and then yeah and then the detective scene is another one that you've seen how interrogations yeah. go but then this is not going that way it's all it's just very funny yeah. yeah oh it's very funny <laughs> no, I, I didn't mean to sound what did you mean I, I got respect for working guys like you jesus ain't that a load off you live in 621 yeah how long you been up there think week eight nine days this multiple choice you know this slob Yeah, he lives next door to me. That's right, Fink. He lives next door to you. You ever talk to him? Once or twice. His name is Charlie Meadows. Yeah, and I'm Buck Rogers. Name's Munt. Carl Munt. Also known as Madman Munt. A little funny in the head. What did he... Funny. As in he likes to ventilate people with a shotgun and then cut their heads off. Yeah, he's funny that way. Started in Kansas. Uh, I don't know. I think that, that because they take things, I think that's probably it. If the movie was just all weird, people might, like Big Lebowski, honestly. Yeah. It was pretty much all weird. Right. And you can you can kind of package it as that. Yeah. And it's everybody a, loves it It's for a that. fun movie because it's so out there. But You've Barton never seen Fink like takes it. these conventions, takes the formula, and yes. tweaks it. Right. It's almost like they're saying to you, this is how you can take a formula There's and that, do something right. very unique about it. But also, you don't like it when people stray from the formula. <laughs> right. You're going to walk away from this saying it's weird. Or you're going to have to think about it for a while. You're right. Not, you're going to have to calibrate yourself to it. Yeah. yeah. Kind of readjust what a movie is doing. What what Just like Barton has to readjust the point of writing for him, you mm-hmm. know? What did, what did you think of um, the, the whole Audrey storyline? Um, like finding out that that she actually wrote Mayhew's stuff, or at least most of it. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Was she kind of like a, in a way, a femme fatale, or like you know, I, I don't know. I don't know about uh, a femme fatale. No, uh, she was doomed. Uh, like she was just kind of a tragic character, really. Yeah, but also a practical character. I didn't see her as feeling like she wasn't getting credit she deserved. Look, it's really just a formula. You don't have to type your soul into it. We'll invent some names and a new setting, and I'll help you. It won't take any time at all. I did it for Bill so many times. You did what for Bill? Well, this. 
wrote his scripts for him? Well, the, the, the basic ideas were frequently his. You wrote... More like pulling the curtain back on what art is. That like, mm. no, it's pretty much, it's a job. Doing it well is doing your job well. It's not necessarily tapping into something mystical. It's something that you can work at. And I, I, it reminds me of a professor in college who, when he would teach Shakespeare, he would say, like, you need to take the idea of genius sort of out of it because there's a reason it's a playwright spelled not like W-R-I-T-E, like a writer of plays, but spelled like Cartwright. Hmm. Somebody who builds carts, somebody who builds a play. That's your job. You build a play. You take the pieces of a play and put them together, and that's your play. Yeah. Some people are better at it. There were better cartwrights than other cartwrights. And yeah. Like it, but really, the, the mystical genius of it and the self-important messages of it are... So, yeah, it's a good point. The driving point. So you're not. You're not. Nece- so what you're saying is it's not necessary. Maybe I was trying to make it into. They were trying to make too much of a gender point, and maybe yeah. it wasn't that. Maybe it was just that Barton Fink had built up this Mayhew character in his mind as being like what a writer should be. Mm-hmm. You know, he 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 embodied everything that a genius mm-hmm. should embody, and you needed her character to be there to do exactly what you're saying to pull back that curtain and say, "There's really nothing genius about this guy," and I'm the one that wrote his stuff. And look at me. I'm pretty normal. Right. I'm pretty. I'm a pretty average woman. I write great stuff. I think there is a gender message to it, too, that women were secretaries, not writers. Yeah. I think you're right, though, in the idea of things being a job. You see that even with the typewriter in the movie. What I think is with the sound again, when he's trying to write, you're hearing little clicks here and there. And then before the actual scene jumps or you really know where you're at, you're hearing a typewriter furiously typing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're thinking, wow, someone's right. You're thinking it might even be him. It mm-hmm. might be him just having this burst of thing. And you realize it's just the secretary in the office mm-hmm. filling out the cards that need to be filled right. out. Right. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a sort of a comedic touch to drive that point home even a little bit more. That yeah. sometimes it's the people who know what their job is and just do it very well. Yeah. Don't try to make a big fuss about it or think that they're more important than the job. Mm-hmm. That's how the world keeps turning is by most people just doing that. Most people yeah. just doing the work that needs to be done. <laughs> and listening to people and understanding so that you can empathize Absolutely. with other people. Yeah. yeah. Well, I feel like that's a good place to end it. It is, yeah. I, uh, not just looking at the clock, but also <laughs> thematically, I feel like that would be a good thing to kind of take away from Barton Fink. I think so, yeah. Um, so I, I think... It was the conversation I needed to, to bump it up that half a star. Yeah. To four, four and a half for me. Did um, you, are you doing it? <laughs> yeah. All right. Why wouldn't I? <laughs> I, I? I said four just because I, hadn't ch- I didn't know what the four was before. Yeah. But uh, now, yeah, I mean, there's so many amazing scenes. Yeah. And performances and it's just everything about it. Why? Four and a half. I am curious, not to get into too much detail about it, but uh, do you have a favorite Coen Brothers movie? Yeah. Follow-up question, now where does Barton Fink kind of oh, gosh. kind of fall within all that? I, I know, I know, it's not, I mean, it's it's not really, really a fair question. It's not. I mean, it's probably, it could probably work its way into a top five depending on the day, I think. Fair enough. I yeah. mean, it's, it's, really, it's really great. My favorite three are probably, I mean, I do like The Big Lebowski a lot. Mm-hmm. It would be in my top three on a certain day too. Um, no Country for Old Men, Fargo, The Man Who Wasn't There. 
all right. So yeah, those five are my top five right now. <laughs> okay. I'll say that. Good. Right, what about you? Do you have a hard to say? I mean, Big Lebowski is kind of like your favorite movie. Big Lebowski is the one when people ask me what is your favorite movie of all time, I always say Big Lebowski, and that has more to do with the fact that it's the movie that I can pop in at any time and just have fun watching. Sure. I, I guess uh, yeah, Barton Fink's got to be up there though. Yeah, it really does. See, but no I, country is up there, and oh, and I, I actually do think Oh Brother is one of Oh Brother Arthur is one of my favorites of theirs, it is really which good. I don't think is a, a common feeling no i i think you're right but it is really great i showed it to my students last year so i watched it twice in yeah. two days and yeah. i thought that, it was great uh so i think we're best buds oh my gosh we're good we're good on this i think we knew we were going to be before we even did the episode that wasn't really what this yeah, episode was no. uh, sorry sorry for, for you guys who buy the ticket to see a fight if you bought a ticket to see a hug fest yo then you got your money's you got worth your money's my friend worth. <laughs> All right. Well, why don't we uh, talk about what we're going to uh, be discussing in our next episode of Can't We Still Be Friends? So our next movie is has a couple inspirations as well, the reasons we're picking it. Mm-hmm. Um, for one, it's 10 years old this year. So it came out in 2006. 2006. Um, also, the, the star and creator recently had a very interesting WTF episode with Mark yes. Maron. Did you listen to it? I did. It's, did you like it? Oh, yeah. It was really good. It was fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he also has a new movie coming out this month called The Brothers Grimsby. Uh, we're talking about Sasha Baron Cohen, and we are going to be watching Borat. Yeah. Um, which will be interesting. After hearing Sasha Baron Cohen's interview, I really want to see it again. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I had been wanting to watch it anyways, you know, yeah. after listening to that interview. But I also am, I think we're both interested to see how that style holds up, knowing, I don't know, now that Sasha Baron Cohen is he's not a household name but i mean he's been in martin scorsese movies right. he's been you know like uh he's not he's not the mysterious figure he was well there's that and there's also even just that style right. of that sort of on the street filming um real situations i think we understand it as being kind of groundbreaking at the time but yeah. how does it hold up now when you watch it now that we're uh-huh. kind of accustomed to that idea you know and it might also be interesting given recent developments in uh, primary elections and that sort of thing to see how uh the political satire yes. that he was yeah. attempting holds up. Yes. Uh, prob- is it still poignant today? Is it still saying things to us? Is it actually tame? It could, it could <laughs> be, yeah. did, did it stop short? I'm um, excited to watch it, really. I, I am, too. I, I, I am, too. It's. I haven't seen it since uh, the theaters. Me neither. Watch it with us. Yeah. So, uh, Borat, it is, and I'm, I'm excited. Me, too. So, um... We just want to thank you for listening to the podcast, and uh, we'll just quickly run down some of the ways that you can get in touch with us, because we would love to hear from you with yeah. any of your thoughts about uh, Barton Bart Fink, Fink, Coen Brothers, any of our past episodes, maybe even how the Oscars went, and oh, yeah. we, we didn't, didn't, talk, we didn't about talk about any of that, so keep the dialogue going through all of our different channels. You can get to us on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a page there. Can we still be friends? You can catch us on Twitter, CWSBF. That stands for can we still be friends? In right. Case you're if you're having a hard time remembering, um, send us an email feedback at can we still be friends.net. And you can always post on any of our actual episodes on the website. Uh, leave a comment there. We also, uh, would like to encourage you to give us a phone call sometime. We do have a voicemail box where you can leave us a, a kind greeting and uh, let us know what you think of the show or any thoughts you have about any of our episodes. The number to call is 847-306-9532. We are always thankful for all of our listeners. And if you are looking or you know, really trying to seek out any sort of way to show any support to us, uh, the, the, the simplest thing you can do is actually maybe just leave us a rating on iTunes. Yeah. Uh, it, it gets the word out. It helps us uh, look good, that, yeah. that five-star rating. Yep. 
Yeah. And also the other thing you can do is just let people know. Yeah. If you enjoy the show, tell a friend. Yeah. Maybe have a listening party. Uh, yeah, you could. That would reduce our number of downloads. Oh, it well, would just be one download for like I guess what like a listening party would be like 100, 125 people. Well, here's what I was thinking. Yeah. In, from now on, maybe what we'll do is we'll we'll have like a beep at the beginning of the show, so they everyone it, yeah. when you're in a the listening party, sure. you all sort of get your phone ready or whatever device you're listening on, and you if all you wanted to have your phone, your iPad, and your laptop. Yeah, it doesn't matter. The device doesn't matter. It doesn't the really. Point, the no, point but I'm saying each person could have three. Just really increase our download. Yes. So to get those down, we'll get those downloads up. So everyone mm, do it at the same time, right? Um, and we'll try to work out the synchronizing for you. Yeah. And and that'd be great. Yeah. It'd be a way to really I, show your support. And yeah, yeah. I mean, I think a typical listening party does run about a hundred, maybe seventy-five people. Right. Uh, so you, if you need to them, rent so, out a venue, right. Just make sure you you uh, mm-hmm. consider that beforehand. Yeah. You know, we're getting to the graduation season, so yeah, a lot of those, yeah, they're, you know, they're getting stuff. But then wedding season. Um, so banquet halls and stuff, they're going to start filling up. So yeah, keep start, that in mind. Think about libraries, you know, yeah. study rooms. Just outside the box, it's one thing we love about our, our, our listeners. They um real, real unique thinkers. Yes. Um, so you guys will figure it out. We have a lot of faith in how you can increase listenership and downloads. Um, and yeah, thanks for listening. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.